0: Okay, I want to put a little bit of autobiographical note for a moment. Uh, during my pre-teen years, I used to hang around uh, with, uh, with my next door neighbor, uh, a young guy called Dennis. Uh, Dennis was the fifth son Of six sons. Just imagine that family for a moment. So he was the fifth son of six sons, and I used to run around with him, especially at summertime. We'd go off and head off for the day and ride off on our bicycles and climb trees and play commandos and play football and do all of those things that that little boys do. Uh, And it was always great fun. Uh, But one thing that used to annoy Dennis more than me, in fairness, uh, was that his little brother Paul used to always try to tag along, little brother number six. And uh, Dennis used to always be annoyed at that. He would slow us down and spoil our fun. Uh, and one incident is now etched in my memory, banks, forever. Uh, it happened in the kitchen in Dennis's house next door. Dennis took an apple, he gave me an apple. Uh, we were eating apples together, and his little brother came in and demanded an apple. Uh, and Dennis reached in under the sink and pulled out. A big red onion. And he handed his little brother an onion. And I'll remember that big juicy bite to my dying day. So he he bit into this onion uh, and he started to smile. And then he started to cry. And then he started to scream. Okay. Now why did I tell you a ridiculous story like that? Well the, the po- simple point of t- telling you that story is... If you don't understand what you have, then there's every chance that you'll use it and abuse it in a way that it was never intended, as poor Paul found out. Now I know that sounds really mean from us, this point of view, from 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 now, uh, but it was hilarious when you were ten. But the point still stands. The point still stands that if you don't know what you've got, then there's every chance you're going to use and abuse it, and that is couldn't be more true. Uh, than when it comes to the Bible. If you don't understand what you've got, then the odds are you're going to use it and abuse it in a way that it was never intended. Uh, and so the big question then is what, what is this? What is this that we hold in our hands, that we read from? Uh, in one sense, uh, a friend of mine who's not a Christian came along uh, to church once uh, and he, he described church as the most boring book group in the world. Uh, you only read one book every week. It's so boring because there are not more other books you could read. Uh, and in one sense, what, why are we willing to be the most boring book group in the world? Uh, what is it that's special about this book? Well, I think this little paragraph at the beginning of the, the letter of Hebrews is incredibly helpful for us. It gives us a very good summary, a good description of what the Bible is, what Scripture is. Um, and in fact, I came across one one sentence summary uh, of these verses uh, by John Mark Comer, uh, a guy I'm enjoying reading at the minute, uh, and he writes this, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, but together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. That is a, I think that's an excellent summary of the first four verses Of the book of Hebrews. And what I want to do for the next few minutes, if you'll indulge me, is I want to just pick apart that sentence phrase by phrase uh, and show you how that is a very good description of what the Bible is. First, then, the Bible is a library of writings. The Bible is a library of writings. Uh, Most of the letters that you read in the New Testament, if you have the chance to read through them, they all sort of start much in the same way as an email does. You know, you've got your email addressed to, from, subject. And so in the the New Testament, there's often who this is from, who it's to, greetings and peace, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Uh, A little greeting. But notice that there's none of those pleasantries at the beginning of the letter of Hebrews. He dives, the writer dives straight in to the argument of the book and perhaps the most dramatic introduction in the New Testament, he simply says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Uh, He spoke to us at many times and in various ways. Uh, In one sense, the, the title that we use, Bible, is actually not that helpful. It's not that helpful. It comes from the Latin word biblia, uh, which means book. Uh, But of course the Bible is not, strictly speaking, a book. Uh, The Bible is, more strictly speaking, uh, a library, a collection of books. Uh, A book has usually a particular genre of literature, and so it is either, um, you know, it's either a novel uh, or it's a cookbook, or it's a comic book, or it's a textbook, um, or whatever, or whatever it is. But the Bible is dramatic, dramatically different. The, the The Bible is a library of books, written over fifteen hundred years, written by forty different authors, uh, written uh, in three different languages: Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, and Greek. Um, the Bible is. Not so much a book, but a library of books. Uh, I don't know if you are familiar with how the Jews refer to what we call the Old Testament. Anyone know how the Jews refer to the Old Testament? The what? Well, strictly speaking, no. They strictly speaking refer to the whole, this is my version of the the sort of uh, Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, It's called the Tanakh. The Tanakh. Uh, And that's a little uh, acronym uh, ta, na, ka, uh, short for ta, which is short for Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And then you have na, which is short for the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And then the ka, which is short for the kavatim, which is the writings. Uh, And you see hints even in the New Testament where the Old Testament is referred to in those ways as the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Uh, And and that title, I think, is actually much more helpful than our Old Testament title because it really captures the idea that what we're dealing with here is a whole library of books that are all radically different. Why, Why is it worth noting that? I think it's worth noting that because we come to a library with different expectations than we do when we come to just a book, don't we? Uh, When we come to a library, uh, we're expecting more than just one type of literature. We're expecting them all. We're expecting them all. Uh, We're expecting novel and memoir. We're expecting cookbook, textbook, comic book, poetry. Uh, We're expecting everything. Uh, And when you come to a library, uh, you come to each, each... um, what's the word I'm looking for, Isle of the, the library with slightly different expectations, don't you? You approach different types of books in different ways. So there's very, very few of us out here, maybe my wife might be an exception, but there's very few of us out here who would sit up on the sofa with a lovely cup of coffee and read a cookbook. very few people would do that. There's very few people who would, uh, people who would, who would open their uh, sci-fi novel and start underlining bits and writing notes in the margin. There's very few people who read the book like that. It's not really designed uh, to be read like that. We approach all these different books with uh, different attitudes, different expectations. Uh, at the moment, give you an insight into what I'm reading. I'm reading, uh, first, I'm reading a novel, uh, the latest Lethal White, which is the c- latest Cormorant Strike novel by uh, Mr. Well, J.K. Rowling, but otherwise, a.k.a. Galbraith, uh, which is excellent. Uh, I'm reading a little book on leadership, 3-H leadership, uh, by Brad Lumnick. Uh, I'm reading then, dipping into the doctrine of the word of God, which is a 600-page technical academic volume. Now, the reality is I approach those three books in radically different ways. I read them in different places. I read them at different times with different expectations as I come to them. And that is true when we come to the Bible. You're meant to come to the Bible in the same way that you come to a library, not in the same way you come to a single volume, because the Bible has got lots and lots and lots of types of literature in it. It's got history and biography, poetry, prophecy, wisdom literature, apocalyptic, which is a style of literature we don't even have anymore today, uh, we've got census data, genealogical records. Uh, they're all written in a different way. Uh, they all convey truth, but they convey truth in different ways. And we miss, we miss out on the brilliance of the book when we're not sensitive to the style uh, in which it's written in. Uh, so you will hear, and I certainly have heard, many fundamentalist evangelical Christians who will say to you, but I take the Bible literally. I take the Bible literally. Uh, And in one sense, I want to be very sympathetic to what they mean by that. If you mean, I believe the Bible is true, then I want to say, absolutely, I agree with you. But at another level, nobody can take the Bible completely literally. It's impossible. If you mean by literal, just take it at face value. So for example, when Jesus says, I am the door, is that literally true? Well, at one level, clearly not. He's not got two hinges and a handle. He's not a door. Clearly, that's a metaphor, a word picture, whereby he's saying something true, but not literal. He's saying something true. If you want to come to God, you've got to come to me. You've got to come to me. Uh, And so... The truth is the Bible is chock-a-block full of word pictures and metaphors and poetry and parable and prophecy that, that work like that, full of, of provocative images uh, that we're not meant to read literally. We never were. Um, and so if you come to the end of the book of Isaiah, and you come to Isaiah 55, and you read that the trees of the field are going to clap their hands. Now, I don't care how fundamentalist you are. You, I don't think anybody believes that when Jesus comes again as the uncontested king, like full Lord of the Rings style, the trees are going to grow hands and clap. No, it's, it's clearly a metaphor, a picture that when Jesus comes again as the uncontested king, it's going to be felt In creation uh, as it's set free from uh, bondage to decay Um, I don't care how fundamentalist you are uh, when you read that little teaching of the Lord Jesus when he says if your eye causes you to sin you should cut it out just grab the nearest sharp implement and cut it out no clearly he never meant anyone to respond that way it's provocative language to make a serious point that actually sin is more deadly than losing an eye or an arm or a limb in any way. Do you see what I'm trying to say? When we come to the Bible, we're meant to approach it not as one book, although it is bound together, but it's not one book. It's a collection of different books written by a whole bunch of different authors in a whole bunch of different styles. And we're to use the common tools of reading to read it and to study it because fundamentally the Bible is literature. Literature stored in a convenient library for us all. First idea then, the Bible is a library of writings. Second idea then is the Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine, both divine and human. So again, just glance back to Hebrews chapter 1. Um, And we see these words in the past. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine. Let's just pick those apart just for a moment. So the scripture contains divine words, divine words. Uh, We've been making this point again and again over these last few weeks that what we have in the Bible is nothing less than the Word of God. He is the source that stands behind it all. He is the one who breathed it out. Uh, He is the one who inspired it in that technical sense. And it's not just that God is kind of behind the ideas in this library. No, The the logic is that God is actually so in control of the whole process of these books being written down that actually the very words, the very phrases are the very words and phrases that God intended for us to have. And So you can see that even in the the language of Jesus that we looked at last week when we heard Jesus say, not the smallest letter, uh, not... Uh, the least stroke of a pen will disappear until uh, of the law until everything is accomplished. You see, Jesus has this very high view of, of Scripture. All of it, right down to the very words, the very strokes of the pen are, are inspired. If you read the book of Galatians, a letter Paul wrote to a, ch- a group of churches in the, the area of Galatia, uh, if you spot his argument in the book, In chapter 3, his whole argument hinges on one word in our Old Testament being singular and not plural. The whole argument hangs on that one point. For Paul, the whole thing right down to the individual words uh, as originally given were inspired. And so Paul can write all scripture then as God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I just want you to pause again just to let that sink in just for a moment. So when you open your Bible and read it tomorrow morning or tomorrow evening or whatever your practice is, as you read the words on the page, you get to hear the very voice of God. You get to hear the very voice of God Because scripture contains divine words. Second idea then, of course, is that scripture contains human words. God spoke through the prophets, that is, human writers of the Bible. And so when you read these words, yes, their source comes from God, but they're also Moses' words and David's words. They're also Isaiah's words, John, Luke, Paul. I, we are not meant to. We are not meant to understand the production of Scripture. Uh, that Paul was somehow, for example, sitting in a, in a prison cell in, in sort of the lotus position in a trance with his eyes back and his head uh, all white. Uh, and that God was dictating Scripture to him and he just wrote it out word for word as he heard it. That has never been the, the Christian understanding of, 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 of the inspiration of Scripture. It's never Christians have never understood uh, Scripture to be produced by pure dictation. Uh, God did not use human beings just like we use a pen to write a note. A pen contributes nothing to your note. It contributes nothing of its own personality. It contributes nothing of its own perspective. No, no. Uh, God used human beings, he used their personality, he used their vocabulary, their style, their concerns, their perspective, their distinctive voice. And so a Christian understanding of how we've got the Bible is very, very different to our Muslim friends who understand uh, Muhammad to just be dictated to by the angel Gabriel, or our Mormon friends who understand the Book of Mormon to to be found as gold tablets that he just translated. Uh, but he wasn't involved, strictly speaking, in the production of those. He's just a secretary. Uh, scripture has a very different picture. is that God used human personality uh, to write Scripture. And I think you can see that as you read it. It's not a secret. It's not a secret. It's right there on the surface of the text. Um, If you read the book of Hebrews, and if you have the chance to study the book of Hebrews, uh, you will discover it's written in very sophisticated Greek. This is clearly written by someone who is a native Greek speaker and well-educated. Whereas you read the book of John, and it's really simple. So when you start learning Greek, you start learning John, because it's really simple, and he doesn't use any big words, which is why I like John. Um, But he uses big ideas, Um, it's written very differently. Um, You see, Paul writes as a brilliant academic, brilliant academic, captured the minds of brilliant academics down through the years, and yet you read Luke, uh, and you see Luke's big concern through the book is concern for the outcast, and the vulnerable, and the weak, the the perspective you would expect uh, from someone who is a doctor and a Gentile. Do you see? They all write with their own style, with their own perspective. Uh, And that's why when it comes to the Bible, we need to work really hard. We need to understand what was the historical setting that this person wrote in? uh, What was their unique vocabulary? What was their unique concerns and distinctive voice? And when we do that, we will understand the message of the book much better. Because Scripture is both divine. It finds its ultimate source in God alone. He is the one who has inspired the writers to write the very words that he intended. And at the same time, he used uh, human beings with their personality and their style and perspective uh, to produce it. And through it all, he preserved them from writing anything that was untrue. The Bible is a library of writings. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human. Let's think about the next phrase. Uh, The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, but together tell a unified story. Um, In... This verse in Hebrews we read in the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The, the, the actual phrase there, the commentators tell me, is is this idea of in various parts, in various parts. Uh, and the commentators tell me the idea here is really that 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 God has revealed the truth about Himself and about His rescue plan uh, progressively over time, piece by piece. All coming together, clicking together to reveal one clear picture. That is what God is doing uh, throughout uh, the production of Scripture. And that means we're meant to understand that Scripture together tells one unified story. That's, That's amazing when you think about it, that all these writers over all this history could all come together and a story could coherently Evocatively, be told, and that's exactly what we find. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, the whole thing. Um, lots of us have tried that Bible in a year plan. Uh, we this year's going to be different. Uh, we start off reading Genesis, and there's loads of stories we know in that: uh, Adam and Eve, and Noah, and Abraham, and all that. That's a good, rip-roaring tale. Like so, we get fly through Genesis. That's no bother. Uh, Then you get into Exodus, and it's great. It's a good story, you know, the story of the great escape. You know, brilliant. Then you get to chapter 20. It all starts to slow down a wee bit. You just come across all these quite monotonous, weird laws. And then at the the last chunk of the book, you've got how to build a tent twice. Not just once, but twice in profound detail. Uh, And you're starting to flag at this point, and then you're hit with uh, Leviticus. Uh, All these weird... Uh, obscure codes of conduct for priests uh, two, mil- three millennia ago. What on earth? And at that point, most of us, you know, we bail. We bail at that point. It's really difficult. Well, what we are hinted at, what's been hinted at here, is uh, just as you need uh, a picture on the front of the jigsaw box if you're going to make sense of all the individual pieces. So you need to keep in mind the big story of the Bible if you're going to make sense of all the individual pieces of the story. And so if you'll indulge me as quick as I can, let me try to summarize the story of the Old Testament in less than five minutes. See if I can do it, okay? First, we see paradise created. Paradise created. We're introduced right from page one to the hero of the book. It's God himself. And God makes this world of beauty and order and light and a garden full of life. And the crowning achievement of his creation is he makes a man and a woman uh, human beings made in his image that he appoints, that he commissions to be those who look after this world on his behalf, in partnership uh, with him, uh, and they're to live in relationship with him. And it's wonderful. For one page, it's wonderful. Uh, Then we come to scene and stage two which is paradise lost, paradise lost, Uh, human beings have a choice that they must make, symbolized by a tree, a choice they must make. uh, The choice is either uh, will they uh, live in partnership with God and accept his definition of right and wrong, or will they grab for power uh, and define right and wrong for themselves, live as their own kings. Uh, And tragically, we know, uh, most of us know, uh, that uh, they listened to God's enemy, they rebelled against God the King, and disaster comes into the world for the first time. Shame, broken relationships with God and with each other, uh, violence, alienation from God as they're put out of God's place, uh, and death ultimately. Uh, We see that human beings spread, they they multiply and they spread, they spread all over the world and they create a a society called Babylon, uh, a society that's marked out by living for yourself, putting yourself in God's place. That's what human beings are like now outside the garden and that's true for you and me as well. We've all inherited their addiction to selfishness. God wants to bless this world uh, but it turns out we're part of the problem. We're part of the problem. Stage three, a promise. A promise of a people and a place. The story zooms in to one couple who come out of Babylon. A man called Abraham and his wife called Sarah. Uh, They don't have any children, and yet God makes an amazing promise to them, despite their age and their barrenness, that he's going to give them not just a family, but through their family, create a whole nation of people. Uh, And he's going to give that people... A garden like land to live in. And from that people living in that land, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. This is the beginning of how God is going to reverse all the mess of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Uh, and we see what follows in the rest of Genesis the story of their very dysfunctional family. Uh, so much so that they end up in exile in Egypt. But even there, God keeps his promise. They start to multiply, and they're children of children, they're children of children, until there's so many of them, they become a threat to Egypt, and they're enslaved. Uh, Then we're introduced to another major character in the Bible, the uh, the person of uh, Moses. Uh, And under uh, Moses, uh, the people of Israel are rescued uh, from Egypt, uh, guided out. Uh, into the desert where they stop off at a mountain and are told how to live as as God's rescued people. Um, Under the leadership of Moses, they're guided to the very boundary of the garden-like land. But Moses isn't allowed to go in, uh, and so he is succeeded by his successor, Joshua. And under Joshua's leadership, they conquer the land, they take possession of this beautiful place where they live, And then in the book of Judges, we discover what life's like for this people now living in this new land. And it's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, They are marked by idolatry and violence, cruelty, and without a thought for God. And in fact, uh, at the end of the book, we see that rather than God's people in God's place leading to blessing, it actually leads God's people living in God's place leads to disaster. But there's hope. There's hope at the end of the book of Judges. Because four times we're told that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because Israel had no king. King. Here's the hope then. Here's how the blessing's going to happen. The king needs to come. Uh, really the book of Ruth and 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles is all about the search for a king. The perfect king who would lead God's people. Uh, and we see a ho- great hope. In David, he's the greatest king that they've ever had, uh, and we see that he brings some measure of peace and prosperity, but he's far from perfect. But he's made a promise that the king who will bring the blessing is going to come through David's family. And so we wait, and so we wait. Uh, Our expectations are risen even higher as we read in the prophets that come after the, the history books. Uh, As they predict the coming of a, a great king who will be so great. He'll be greater than Moses and David and everyone that's come before. And he's going to be so great, he's going to even change the hearts of his people. So that they want to do what is right. But we wait. And then in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we read these words. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The king has come. All the hopes, all the expectations have finally arrived uh, in the person of Jesus. Do you see how the Bible all fits together as one unfolding story? The story of God making and keeping his promises. I think that's the best way for us to deal with many of the, the so-called contradictions. You ever hear that? All oh, this Bible's full of contradictions. Well, what sort of contradictions are there? Um, and very often you'll hear, yeah, but, you know, we're told not to eat bacon in the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament, and it's okay to eat bacon. But, of course, we, if you remember that the Bible is one story, then, of course, that makes sense. Because those instructions given to those people back then was for that part of the story. But now we're into a whole new stage of the story. Those things were good and right and true in terms of instructions for God's people back then to keep them separate from all the pagan nations around. But now with the coming of the Lord Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, uh, a multi-ethnic, transnational community, then those instructions don't apply in the same way anymore. There is no contradiction there. You get the idea? Tim Keller writes these words. "Um, The reason for our confusion is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will put things right. It's a story. The Bible is a story. And then, lastly, and very quickly, the Bible is a library of writing that are both divine and human, but together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Which leads us to Jesus. Uh, back in Hebrews, we see uh, the way that the, the writer of the Hebrews invites us to do, uh, play a game of spot the difference between verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, God spoke long ago, but now in these days, he spoke through the prophets, now he's spoken by the Son. He spoke to our ancestors, now he's spoken to us. He spoke in various ways, but now the, the, the assumption here in verse 2 is that the complete, the final revelation of God has been revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus. The logic of these verses is that all the predictions, all the prophecies, all the patterns, the um, are all now fulfilled with the coming of the Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. According to the writer of the Hebrews, Jesus is the center and the climax of the story of the Bible. And to stress that point, he's very clever, to stress that point that Jesus is the complete, final um, unpacking of God's work uh, of rescue, and restoration. Uh, Just in the same way that uh, God's perfect work of creation happened in seven days, the writer is stressing now that God's work of rescue is happening in Jesus and describes him in seven ways. Look at the ways he's described. He's described as the inheritor. He's like the king of Psalm 2 who inherits the nations. He's the creator. He's the revealer. The exact representation of God. We want to go, God's like, look at Jesus. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the savior of sinners. He's the ruler in heaven. He's superior to angels. All of God's complete plan is now focused on this individual. The son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Jesus himself made the same point in John 5 uh, in the midst of a heated exchange with the Pharisees who were uh, the the strictest religious sect of his day uh, when Jesus was arguing with them about the Bible. uh, Jesus makes the point that they, although they are Bible nerds, obsessed over the Bible, nevertheless they have lost the plot, literally they've lost the plot of the Bible. And so Jesus can say in John five verse thirty nine, "You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life." These are the very scriptures that testify about me. It's a shocking claim to make. Everything Isaiah and Noah, or sorry, Isaiah and Moses um, and all of the prophets, all of that looked forward to me. Yours truly, me. No one else could say that. Uh, I put on this quote because I fell in love with it this week, but this captures something uh, of Jesus being the climax of the Bible story. It's from Andrew Wilson's little book on the Bible. Jesus is the new Adam who passed his garden test by submitting to the will of the Father, crushed the snake, and gave life to the dead rather than death to the living. Jesus is the new Abel whose blood announces that family feuds, murder, and death are on the way out and that the subsequent generations will be acquitted rather than condemned. Jesus is the new Enoch who knows God, walks with him, and is not subject to the power of the grave. Jesus is the new Noah who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord and in whom humans are rescued from judgment the judgment they deserve. Jesus is the new Abraham who trusts God, leaves his homeland to start a new nation, and ends up inheriting the world with his galaxy of descendants. Jesus is the new Isaiah, the miraculous child offered as a sacrifice out of obedience to God and rescued from death when all seemed lost. Jesus is the new Jacob, who saw heaven opened, received the promises, wrestled with God, and commissioned 12 guys to bless the nations. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, praised by his brothers and victorious over his enemies to whom the world brings tribute and obedience. Jesus is the new Joseph, the beloved son who is sold for the price of a slave, abandoned and left for dead, but who remains faithful and then gets lifted up to the right hand of the king of the world. And that's just Genesis. Jesus is the climax of the Bible story. It all looks forward. It all points forward to him What is the Bible? What is the Bible? The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. He alone, we sung it a few moments ago, he alone has the words of eternal life. He alone provides the words of eternal life for us in Scripture And so my prayer is that as you open your Bible, day by day, morning by morning, or evening by evening, that you will find life in him. Let me pray before we share communion together.